Welcome to a talk from St. Saviour's Sunbury. We hope it blesses you. On the 31st of March, 1914, a baby boy was born called Joe Rance, and he was born in Spokane, a small lumber town in Washington in the northwest of America. He was born into a time of the Great Depression where both food and work were really scarce. It was a tough time. He was born and lived with his mum and his dad and his much older brother, so Joe's in the middle there. And then when he was four years old, his mother sadly died from lung cancer and his dad packed him off to live with an aunt. His dad was grieving, couldn't cope and Joe went to live with his aunt. Three years later, he came back uh, to live with his family and he lived with his dad and his older brother and surprise, a stepmother. And his uh, dad had remarried, uh, a much younger woman, I have to say, um, and uh, they'd had a child as well. So Joe comes back and he's got, uh, he's got a baby brother as well. So all this goes on and her name is Thula and she takes an instant dislike to Joe. Can't stand him, there's real friction in the family, it's hard. And again, work is scarce. Joe's dad finds work at a gold and ruby mine, uh, next slide, um, in Idaho. So the whole family have to move to Idaho. And the, um, they're all in wooden shacks on top of each other, a bit like butlins, but nicer. Um, <laughs> there's a whole community living there together. So there's a minor a minor sort of argument between Joe and one of his new brothers. He, they, he then goes on to have three extra brothers as well. So he has a minor argument and Thula chucks him out, doesn't want him with them. And his dad's, dad has to quickly find an arrangement with the school on site to say, can you look after him? Can you keep him safe? And they said, yeah, we can, he can live at the school. We can look after him but he needs to earn his keep uh, by working in the kitchens in, for the community. And so at 10 years old, uh, Joe finds himself on his own and working for a living. Uh, the work contract dries up, they move back to Spokane. And uh, one day Joe comes back from school to find the family car packed up with luggage and furniture and his brother's in the back and his stepmother in the front and his dad meets him halfway up the driveway and says, son, we, can't, we cannot survive here. It's just too hard. We need to move on and we need to find work. But the problem is Thula doesn't want you to come with us. So you need to stay. You need to stay behind. And so at Joe, age 15, is living on his own trying to make do and make something of his life. He has to find odd jobs. He works as a lumberjack for a bit. He digs ditches, hard manual labor. He um, poaches salmon to sell in the town. He steals liquor that's delivered to everyone's driveways so that he can sell that. Any money that he has that's spare after eating and buying oil for lamps, etc., goes on school. And then, a breakthrough, finally, for Joe. His older brother 
invites him to go and live with him and his wife in Seattle. And so Joe goes to Seattle and lives there. Um, Yeah, that's the right one. For the first time in Joe's life, he has some stability and he goes to the college in, in Washington. One day, Joe, um, Joe is in the gymnasium. He's really good at gymnastics. He's, the hard manual labor that he's done since he was 10 has given him a physique to die for. Um, he's very, very strong. Um, and a guy called Al Albrechtson comes up to him in the gym one day and says, hey, you should come and do the trials for the rowing at Washington in the university. So Al turns out to be the rowing coach and he heads up all three years of the rowing form that they, that they have there. So on the 9th of October, uh, 1933, Joe rocks up at the, uh, at the yard, at the boathouse, with dozens and dozens and dozens of other boys and men to begin trials. It's really tough. It's freezing cold. It's, uh, you know, Washington, that's a cold area. It's, the sea is choppy. Um, they, they would row in snow and sleet and rain, and it is tough. And weeks go by and boys drop out, but Joe's still there. Now, the other thing that's going on here as well is that Al Albrechtson, the coach, likes to mix up the crews constantly. So he'll keep changing boys from different boats and shifting them around. And so this is another thing that Joe is like, this is more uncertainty in my life and he finds he finds that element quite tough but he finds the rowing the physical aspect a little bit easier because he's so strong this lack of trust that he has becomes a bit of an issue for Al Albrechtson who notices that he'll put Joe in a boat and sometimes it flies and other times it doesn't and he can't work Joe out and so he says to a guy called George Pocock um, this chap here And he says to him, could you have a chat with him? See if he's all right, see what's going on. Now, George Pocock um, was an absolute guru of rowing. And he had a a boatyard up in Kingston, between Kingston and Teddington, just up the road, or up the river. He he built racing shells for, for everyone who wanted them. And at one point, he supplied uh, all the American universities. Actually, about 80% of American universities used his shells. So he was exceptional, an exceptional craftsman. He moved to Washington. Um, He was asked to come across. And he went to the the boatyard, and he rented out the space above uh, the boathouse. And that's where he had his, his workshop, just him, working away. And he had a chat to Joe, and he gets under the skin of him to find out this, what's this trust thing. He can't, he's finding it hard to trust other people. And so George has a really good chat with him and gets under the skin and works out what he needs to do. And he says to him, you need to trust the other boys in your boat that, that they're doing the same as you. You're pulling for them and they're pulling for you. Eventually, the boats are agreed, the boys are set, they're in their boats, they know where they are. Few, says Joe. Joe's boat is selected to go up against all the other crews in the um, universities. 
to do trials to represent the USA at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the Hitler Games, as they became known. On uh, leading up to race day, which they won and then went to, uh, went to Berlin, when uh, about three days before, uh, the stroke, the lead stroke oarsman um, called Don Hume got really sick um, and it turned out to be a lung infection and he was struggling to row. Um, but, so, but they went out training and getting used to the, the lanes that they'll be in. And came race day, Al Albrechtson made the decision to say, I don't think Don is fit to, to row. We need to bring in the replacement that we've got with us. And the other guys went, nope, we're not racing without him. Win or, you know, win or lose, we're, we're running, we're going with him. So the team um, got into their George Pocock racing shell, which they called the Husky Clipper. And they got in wearing their tatty old grey t-shirts and shorts because they didn't want to get their pristine kit that they'd been given. They didn't want to get it dirty. So they, they get in and they are, um, they're drawn in the furthest lane. So they're in the, the wind and the chop and they're nearest the crowd, which is deafening. So they're, they're finding it hard, hard to hear. And they find it so hard to hear that they miss the start and they're two lengths behind before they know it. Um, bit of a problem. And Don Hume, who's in the first in the boat, the next slide shows, so there's Don uh, on the right-hand side. And he is sat right in front of him. is a guy called Bobby Mock, who's the coxswain, and he's calling out the rhythm that he wants the boat to go at. But Don is like a zombie. He can't function. He's, he's rowing, but he's, he's not there. He's, he's just in a different place. And he's finding it really hard to hear because of the noise. So the coxswain starts banging on the side of the boat the tempo that, that he needs, and Don sort of bursts into life, and the whole boat kind of lifts and, and pulls. And with about 50 meters to go, they burst into the lead and win the race. They're at the top, so it's tight. <laughs> but they win. Uh, Joe then becomes, uh, he finishes his studies after that. And he becomes a, he gets his chemical engineering degree. And he marries his childhood sweetheart. They have children. He, he, um, sorry, where am I? Yeah, and he, the, his granddaughter is now a, a great rower as well, an elite rower. Uh, and he died in 2007, aged 93. And Joe never lost a race. Whatever boat he was in, he never lost a race. And they're now building, right at the moment, some foundations to the Joe Rance Boathouse. Now, I tell you this story because, one, it inspires me and moves me. But here's a man who was abandoned three times in his life. He was kind of disposable in some ways. And he was chucked aside. But... He had people around him who saw something in him and the potential that he had. And they, they got alongside him and they showed him things that he didn't know he had in him. And they told him things and he learned and he listened and he acted. And he became a better person. More than what he achieved, he became a better person. Now we probably 
would look at his life and there's millions of other stories that we know of people and we go, wow, what a life. What a life of significance. What, what a life to be remembered. And we all want that in our lives. We all want to know that our life means something and it's significant and we want to be remembered when we're dead. And we will die, even though the comedian Stephen Wright says, um, I intend to live forever, so far so good. <clears throat> or perhaps, perhaps we link more better with Woody Allen when, uh, when he says, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But it's really easy for us to think, isn't it, that other people's lives are more important than ours, that we don't measure up. How, how worthy are we? Are we significant at all? So if you're, if you're thinking at the moment that you're not significant and your life doesn't really matter, or you've been told that you're a nobody and your life is, is nothing, then I've got some good news for you. Because God says you're significant. God says you're significant. And if you want the proof of this, um, Romans 5 verse 8, which was written by the Apostle Paul when he wrote to this fledgling church in Rome. And he says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I might be wrong, but I don't think that you go dying for people that you think are insignificant. I don't think you die voluntarily for people that you think are worthless or have no value or aren't important. And so the good news is that Jesus has died and already risen. And it's done. And so our lives do matter. They always have done and they always will. Ecclesiastes, as we've heard from the video, sums up about this idea of loving God and keeping his commands. And Jesus goes a little bit further and he says, when he's asked about what's the, the most important commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and your soul and your mind and strength, da 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 but the second is like it, he says, love your neighbor as, as yourself. In um, John, John Ortberg's um, brilliant book called uh, When the Game is Over, it all goes back in the box. And this is about finding a purpose and a meaning. It's a fantastic book. He says, life, life is a gift. And this, this, he says, the trophy that matters is not on our shelves or resumes, CVs, he's American. It's the soul that we become. That's what matters. Who are we becoming? Joe became a better person throughout his life. From the hardship he, where he suffered initially, he became a better person. Where are we going? Which direction are we going in? Because Jesus has set us free from trying to find our significance in all sorts of stuff, whatever it might be. We're free of that. Uh, we're unique. And he delights when we use the skills that he's given us. He delights in when we're happy with who we are. And he delights in when we serve other people and 
live our lives becoming closer and closer to him to mirror more his life. So the question this evening is, how much are you striving to find significance in stuff and comparing yourselves to other people? How much are we accepting Jesus' invitation to join in his kingdom now here on earth and into eternity? At Washington University, the uh, boat that uh, George Pocock built, the Husky Clipper, it hangs from the ceiling in the dining room where people come and go, obviously. And it's there as a reminder to the students that here's what Joe's and Joe and his crew achieved when they conquered the world that day. But we have an empty cross above us. Not as a reminder for anything we've done, but as a reminder for what Jesus has done for us when he conquered death. So you are significant to Jesus. Let's live in the freedom that his victory brings now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. For more information about St Saviour's, please visit our website at www.stsaviourssunbury.org.uk.